We've come to another week of our verse-by-verse journey through all of God's inspired Word, and I invite you to kick off this new week by opening up to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 4. And we are looking at uh, Peter developing this idea that Jesus is this stone that God chose, but people rejected, and that he is building up a building of, of honor and glory to God the Father made up of people who are the living stones that have been redeemed by Jesus himself. And so this is what Peter writes, 1 Peter 2, 4, as you come to him, that is to Jesus, a living stone, so Jesus is alive and he is metaphorically this stone, he is rejected by men, which that's going to uh, play into uh, Psalm 118 in just a moment, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So even though people did not like Jesus for what he represented, God did. God bore testimony that he was his only begotten son and beloved son, and uh, people needed to be listening to him. But then verse 5, he develops this idea. You yourselves, we Christians, should understand that he's talking to us. You yourselves, like living stones. So we're alive, and we are also metaphorical stones in this building. You are being built up as a spiritual house. And the word house in Jewish circles often was used to refer to the temple. And that seems to be the context here. Because a temple is God's palace. It's the where God reigns from. Uh, the seat of his power. And so we believers are being built up into this spiritual temple where God reigns from. Uh, but not just that. He shifts to a separate metaphor. And he says, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we believers are priests. Now, what do priests do? They represent God to the people and people to God. And in the Jewish period, that was done through the offering of sacrifices. And so here, we believers are supposed to be helping other people, sinners, just like we used to be, offer a spiritual sacrifice of Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, uh, so that they can become believers as well, and that they can become priests in the household of God, and the cycle will just keep going on and on and on. Uh, each generation recruits the next generation, 
and this will continue right until Jesus splits the sky. Then he starts bringing in the pertinent passages from the Old Testament. For it stands in Scripture, and then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, starting at verse 16. And uh, Isaiah was writing and ministering in a time of great sinfulness amongst the Jewish people. A lot of them had abandoned the true faith, and they were involved in all sorts of inappropriate behavior. And so Isaiah was on the scene to warn them that they needed to do what God told them to do, and not just simply what they wanted to do for themselves. And in the midst of all of that, uh, he makes this prophecy, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. Now, Zion is a poetic reference to the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, but it is also a reference to the spiritual site of God's reign. Because the Temple Mount was supposed to represent the palace of God, the throne of God, but it was a physical thing. So there was a real thing, a real place of worship in the spiritual realm uh, that was also Mount Zion. And there is something that happens on those both on both those levels, both the physical and the spiritual. So God says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. So he's going to build a building. But as we were just reading, that building is made up of living stones, people. And it's held together by the chief stone, which is Jesus. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Now, that's not a foundational cornerstone like we do in our Western building projects, but rather the high cornerstone that finishes the building up at the top. So, a cornerstone that is chosen and precious. So, it is special. It is what God wants and has has sent. And then it becomes plain that we're talking about the Messiah. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the Messiah, Jesus, is that cornerstone that God sent to planet Earth to tie everything together. Verse number seven. So, the honor is for you who believe. Uh, So, we get honor from being part of this spiritual temple, this spiritual house that is tied together by the cornerstone of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, We won't be put to shame because we're part of something special. Instead, we will feel honored to be part of that. So the honor is for those of you who believe, but for those who don't believe, 
This is what happens. And then he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. Quote, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. End quote. Now, that's exactly what I was telling you yesterday as we were beginning this section, is that when Solomon's temple was being built, the stone, which was supposed to be the final stone put in place, the top of the corner, it arrived at the building site of the Temple Mount, uh, having lost its markings or maybe it had never been marked, but the builders rejected it because they didn't see a place for it in the plan. And it ends up being thrown off to the side, weeds grow up around it, and people stumble over it. Uh, And eventually, though, when it comes time to dedicate the temple by putting that last building block in place, they start scouring for it and find out in a very funny turn of events the stone that they'd rejected ends up being the most important stone in the whole building. Now, that passage is used both by Jesus and by his apostles to apply to him, to apply to Jesus, because he comes on the scene and he gets rejected by the leadership. He gets rejected by the Bible studies or by the Bible students, the Pharisees, uh, the lawyers, the ones who were experts in the law, the rabim, the rabbis. They look at him and say, no, nope, that's not, that. he doesn't have a place in our plan. He doesn't make sense here. And then eventually it turns out he's the most important thing in all the universe. And there's some humor to it, but it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek cheek sort of humor. Uh, Verse number eight, and, uh, and he appends another quote from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter number eight, verse 14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, Isaiah and Psalm 118 are separate time periods of writing, so they're not about the exact same thing Uh, in their own context, but in the prophetic context, they are about the same thing. Uh, That when God puts something in place that the people don't like, they reject it, and it becomes a stumbling point. It becomes offensive to them. Uh, The word in the Greek language here, uh, for a rock of offense, offense is really important. Uh, it's where we get our word scandal from. It's skandalon. Uh, and what it has in mind, it's the trigger of any trap. So like when you think about your mousetrap, your basic mousetrap, the little place that you put all the peanut butter or marshmallow or bait of whatever sort, Uh, that you think that those mice are going to love, the thing you put it on is the trigger. That's the scandal on. And so we actually have a phrase today uh, that matches perfectly this idea. When we say, that person triggered me. 
means they made me mad. They made me upset. They made me think bad things toward them and want to do bad things toward them. And so that's what happened, is that when Jesus comes doing the will of God, he triggers people because he brings the message of, you've got a problem, you need to repent. And people don't often like to hear that. They don't like to be told that they've got a problem. And it triggers them. And that's exactly what happened between Jesus and the leadership. Uh, And uh, Peter goes on with his application. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, don't overapply the word destined here. Uh, It's not that God made these guys reject Jesus. It is... God knew they would reject him and encoded it in the prophecies. He knew ahead of time how it was going to play out, and so he just wrote it ahead of time in the literature so that when it did happen, he could say, see, I told you so. So they end up being triggered by Jesus, disobeying Jesus, at least some of them, and um, that causes them to be dishonored, to be lost. And Jesus even warned them of this, that uh, they were going to die in their sins because they did not believe in him. And that was not necessary. That's Jesus' point, is you don't have to have this happen, but it will if you don't repent. Now, how does that play into the next part? Well, those who have put their faith in Jesus aren't in that category. Uh, We have not been scandalized by Jesus. We weren't triggered by Jesus, or at least we didn't stay triggered by Jesus. Eventually, we changed the way we thought, and we repented. We embraced him as our Messiah. We renounced our old life of sin, and we became part of, of the living stones that were being built up into this house of praise to God. And so Peter jumps on that idea and brings in some other uh, language to repeat that same concept. Verse number nine, you are a chosen race. Now this language was actually first applied by God to the Israelis. When he brought them out of Egypt, he said, this is what I'm offering you the chance to be. For you to be a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my possession. That's what God wanted and offered them. Now, uh, he has said through Jesus Christ the same thing. And those who embrace Jesus become part of these very things. You are a chosen race. We are part of a special family. You are a royal priesthood. So we are members of the royal family because we are children of the king. 
but we are also members of the priesthood, just like we were talking about yesterday and today earlier. We work between God and people. So we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, We've been set aside uh, as a people group, Christians, to represent God on planet Earth. And that makes us a people for his own possession. Uh, This is the, the... Fun to say Hebrew word, segula. A segula was your most treasured possession. Uh, As I often uh, kiddingly say, uh, if your house was on fire, what would you run back in and risk your life to grab? That's your segula. That's your most valuable possession. Now, I would anticipate for most people It would be another person, or it might be their pet. Uh, But for Jesus Christ, it was us. He ran into this burning building of planet Earth and grabbed us by his death and his resurrection because he could not imagine going throughout eternity without us. That's how special we are to Jesus Christ, and we should appreciate that. And that should prompt us then to do this next part, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I I want you just to imagine for a moment that your house was on fire and somebody came rushing in and grabbed you and carried you out of the fire at great risk to themselves. When they put you down um, at a safe distance, would you go, yeah, I could have done that myself? Or would you be like all on top of, you saved me. You risked your life to get me out of there. And wouldn't you also be telling people about this? You see this person? This person saved me. This person is a hero. See, that, that is to be our attitude toward Jesus Christ. We want to talk at the top of our lungs about what he has done for us. He took us out of the darkness of sin and brought us into the light of salvation. And that is something we need to be expressive about. Uh, So many times, um, people as Christians seem to be hesitant to talk about the most significant thing that has ever happened to them. And that is puzzling. Because in other aspects of their life, they would never be that shy. They would want everyone to know. And so let's, let's uh, take to heart the training in this section that Jesus has brought us into a special relationship with himself and with his Father. And that ought to prompt us to really talk 
about him and his mission uh, for everyone. Uh, now, verse number 10, uh, he's, he's still making use of some Old Testament imagery here because he is Jewish, and I think an awful lot of the people he's writing this letter to are either Jewish and well acquainted with the Scripture themselves, or they may be Gentiles who have embraced Christianity and are learning Old Testament Scriptures as part of their spiritual heritage. And so Hosea would be one of the prophetic letters that they would have been introduced to. And in the book of Hosea, the prophet is told to exemplify God's situation with Israel, uh, which was basically Israel was cheating on him. And so Hosea had to go out and marry someone that he knew would cheat on him. And she did. And so when it comes time to start naming the kids that are born from that sort of um, unfaithful situations, God tells him to give the kids names like uh, not mine and uh, not loved and things of that nature. Uh, But then the book goes on to highlight the future, how God would continue to love, and out of that, uh, there would come repentance. And it seems as if after years and years of love toward Gomer, the unfaithful wife, Gomer eventually did repent and come back and loved Hosea. And so there in the book, there are new names given to the kids. And this is prophetically applied first to Israel as their opportunity to have a fresh start. But now in this book, in First Peter, it is applied to the people in the church that we can have a fresh start in Jesus Christ. Verse number 10, once you were not a people. So once you were known as not mine, that's how God uh, would have termed you. You're not mine. But now you are God's people. Now God is claiming you through Jesus Christ. Once you had not received mercy, that is not loved in the sense of not, not cared for because you're not mine, but Instead, now you have received mercy. So everything has been turned around, and it's all because of Jesus Christ, because of our faith in him and his atoning death and his bodily resurrection. And so that should really change our attitudes. That's, that's Peter's intention when he is writing this, is everybody appreciate your situation in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 11, beloved. And he repeats that term of endearment several times. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, he's playing on the words that he started with in the letter. And that is, 
He's writing to people who are part of the Jewish diaspora, people who have grown up uh, in as Jews far from the promised land. And so they don't think of themselves as uh, natural-born citizens of the place where they're actually naturally born into, uh, like northern Turkey. Uh, they instead think of themselves as outsiders. They're Jewish people living outside of the Jewish homeland. So Peter trades on that idea that we Christians, we are outside our homeland. Our homeland is God's holy presence, eternity. Uh, but we are stuck here in this fallen world. And so we have to we have to live a certain way. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to, to abstain from the passions of the flesh with which wage war against your soul. So he says, I need you to keep fighting. Don't give in to the temptations to be like everybody around you. Uh, the society of that day was very heavily sexual. It was, it was sexually charged, not unlike our own society today. And it was also full of bad attitudes, uh, very selfish attitudes. And so Peter says, don't give in to that. I'm begging you, don't give in to the desires of your body. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, he's Jewish, and as I already said, he's writing to a lot of people who are Jewish themselves, but they're believers in Jesus now. And then he's writing probably to a community of Gentiles who have embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they don't really think of themselves in that same Gentile mindset anymore. They now think of themselves as the people of God. They are honorary Jews. They are honorary covenant people. They are part of the family of the promise. And so he kind of takes that concept and he says, look, all those other Gentiles out there that are sinners, you make sure you live properly in front of them so that when they do speak against you as if you were evildoers, they can see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he says, you just keep setting a good example as God's children so that one of these days they can bear testimony that you lived righteous and holy lives in front of them. 